Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. All right, now, I, I know you know this, but the Old Testament is awesome because it's totally crazy. It's unregulated to a certain degree. It's graphic. It's earthy. It's real. <laughs> That's kind of why it's fun. Only in the Old Testament are you going to find a book like like Hosea. I said Isaiah. Hosea. Dude, Hosea gives us probably the craziest commandment slash object lesson from God of maybe all time. The book of Hosea starts um, what used to be considered one book. It was a series of 12 prophets all contained on one scroll. And these 12 minor prophets, as they are called, beginning with Hosea, are all roughly in chronological order. Now, Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he prophesies shortly after Israel becomes its own separate independent nation. So, just for chronology's sake, we are big time rewinding from where we were in Daniel. Daniel is all the way, way after the time that the northern kingdom is destroyed, even the southern kingdom is taken into captivity, so we're rewinding way back there. Anyway, As Hosea starts preaching, the people of the northern kingdom are pretty bad. They're really bad. And Hosea can see the trajectory for them trending towards uh, destruction. So the book starts with, like I said before, one of the craziest commands slash object lessons I know of. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came unto Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, go marry a promiscuous woman. And have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. What? What? Anyways, he he does what God says. He goes and he finds a girl named Gomer who fits the credentials. She is a promiscuous woman. And he marries her. And they have three children. And the names of these kids are way symbolic. One is named Lo Ruhamah, which means not pitied. Is a main meaning God, I God will have no more. Well, shoot, I'm botching that. I God will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel. I will utterly take them away. So not pitied, right? Another one is named Lo Ami, not my people. For ye are not my people and I will not be your God. That's opposite what he tells Abraham. I am your God, you are my people, right? That's covenant language. I don't know what the opposite is here. The curse language. After this, Gomer cheats on Hosea like a lot. Multiple lovers, completely karajipao. It's bad. She ditches her fam and for a time she is having fun She's doing whatever she wants. Uh, She gets gifts of bread, wool, flax, oil, drink. Like, I mean, it's basically always ladies' night for Gomer. It's a party. And she's loving it. But it doesn't last. Wickedness never was happiness. Then God says to Gomer, and through this saying to Gomer, basically God talks to all of us, about how about sin and joy and sin. He says, Behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she not find her paths. 
and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. I strip her naked as the day she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will cause all her mirth to cease. I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, uh, whereof she hath said, these are my rewards that my lover has given me. God basically says, hey, it's going to run out. You're not going to find happiness in this sin. And, And sure enough, eventually the good times run out and she is lost and alone. Ultimately, we we don't quite know how, but Gomer ends up literally a slave. And we can hear her make a decision, much like the prodigal son saying, I will go and return to my first husband, Hosea, for then it was better with me than now. But why would Hosea even want her? Well, because God says to him, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress. God says, go take her back. Are you joking me? And he he doesn't just say, take her back. He says, behold, I will allure her. I will speak comfortably unto her. I will give her vineyards and a door of hope, and she shall sing there in the days of her youth, as in the days of her youth. Dang, she left. She's at fault. She's the one that cheated. And he woos her back. Well, before he woos her, he says, I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and a homer of barley. That's six ounces of silver and 430 pounds of grain. Basically what he's doing when he buys her back from slavery is he's playing the role of of Goel that we explored in Ruth. That that word meaning a redeemer. Like the name Hosea can be rendered as Joshua in Hebrew or Jesus in Greek. Redeemer, Goel. You like that? That was good stuff. So he buys her back from slavery. He redeems her. And then he actively dates her, courts her, and allures her back into this relationship. Oh, my goodness. I, I don't know another place that teaches us so clearly the nature of God. Like number one, he wants good things for us. That's why he brought us into his family to start with. That's why he made a covenant with each of us, bringing us into his family through baptism. And number two, it shows us that he allows us to choose for ourselves and allows us to send it and eat dirt sometimes, not because he hates us, but rather because most of us won't really change. We won't really turn to God until we taste the metaphorical blood of getting punched in the mouth. I don't know what it is about us, but it's true. And one point in Hosea, God even says, I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps, and I will rend the call of their heart. Basically, God says, I'm going to get you to a point where I tear open their obstinate hearts and help them see a way forward. Sounds painful, but you see the purpose of what's happening, not punishment, redemption. That's cool. And third, I want you to see this. You cannot break God. You cannot screw up so big he won't love you. You can't. There is no point 
where he won't actively try and woo you back into a relationship with him. There is nothing he can't fix. Nothing. Stop thinking you're some sort of special case. You are not. He will change you the moment you choose to let go and give it to him, period. That's what Hosea is teaching us. And the rest of Hosea is trying to get us to accept this love and turn to him. Chapters 4 through 10 talk about how when we leave God, the consequence is that my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Now, the word used for knowledge here is not just intellectual, but it's a word for experience. And it especially refers to to experiencing relationships. Basically, he's saying these people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge of a relationship. Like, you, you can't know about someone until you've spent time with them, a long time. And Hosea is saying, since you have not been hanging out with God, you don't know him. And, and it's a pattern we have been seeing throughout the Old Testament. But, and this is huge, if we just turn to God... Now, th- that phrase, turn to God, is a synonym for repent. But honestly, I kind of want to abandon this word completely because I do not think it, the, that word means what you think it means. God is just saying, come back to my family. Chapter 6, verse 1, come, let us return to the Lord. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. I drew them with bands of love. Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Now, a heifer is a young female cow that, that has never had a calf. And, and so the Lord is saying, you're like a backsliding heifer. You're a backsliding young female cow. And it's not necessarily an insult. Um, like the, this idea of backsliding happens all over in the Bible. It means turning aside, turning back or falling. The, the immature female cow is one that you put in a double yoke. You know what I'm talking about, those uh, implements to pull wagons that where there's two cows, two ox that you can put in there. And so the, the idea is that you're supposed to drag the cart together forward. But the backsliding heifer decides to turn aside, stop, even to go backwards. Some heifers will even wiggle their way out of the yoke because they are small enough to to do that and go see more interesting pastures and paths around them. Uh, And when they do that, it hinders the, the way forward. But he says, I will heal their backsliding and love them freely. Ultimately, the idea is, even if you're 70 years old, you're still immature and young to God. You're still learning. He's like, I get it. Come back. Let's work this out. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. Oh, so good. 
This idea of ultimate healing is picked up in the next book of Joel. And like Hosea, Joel starts out with an object lesson. Fortunately for Joel, he doesn't have to marry a cheating wife. Instead, this object lesson talks about a locust swarm that has recently come through the land. And it goes like this, that which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust hath left the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm hath left the caterpillar hath eaten. Basically, like we who get our food from boxes from Amazon delivery may have difficulty conceptualizing the level of devastation he is describing. This is a locust swarm that just covers the land. So thick, the blackness blocks out the sun. And the absolute promise they bring is that you will watch your family starve. That's fear. And Joel uses this moment of apprehension, fear, promised hardship to say, guys, This is an invitation to turn back to God. He says, lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. He is saying, I want you to to feel this like a young widow. Be ashamed, O ye husband. Gird yourselves, lament ye priests, howl ye ministers of the altar, Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you ministers of God. Sanctify ye a fast and cry unto the Lord. Then Joel, says himself, Joel himself says, O Lord, to thee will I cry. He's like, everybody. He's like, let's turn back. He says, today is the best day to recommit yourself to a real relationship with Christ. For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Now the day of the Lord is shorthand for the second coming, the apocalypse, the judgment. And this familiar locust imagery comes up again. A day of darkness, of gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the morning spread upon the mountains. So he's picking up this imagery of judgment, of fear. But this time what darkens the sun isn't locusts, it's horses and horsemen. So they can run like the noise of chariots on the tops of the mountains. They shall leap like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble as strong people set in battle array before their faces. So he's seen this imagery, not now of locusts coming, but of soldiers marching, right? Devouring the land, burning things against uh, before them, like Lord of the Rings level stuff here. Before their face, the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall not break their ranks. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. There's some World War Z crap there. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. So the imagery, the object lesson Joel is using, he starts with this locust imagery and the fear they feel then. And he's like, if you felt fear then, imagine when this swarm of men come and they just basically run up your walls, tear through your city and destroy everything. It's way scarier and way more concrete here. Men of war who who just don't die and just keep coming. Why this imagery? Why is Joel going so hard on this sort of uh, scary imagery? Now, it, it may be literal, 
But so often in these um, prophetic books, they are poetic. And this whole book of Joel is a poem. If you read it in another Bible version, you'll see this clearly. It's separated in poetic stanzas. And you remember the purpose of poetry is to help you feel something, to experience something through word art, even if you aren't there. And that's what Joel's trying to do more than anything. He's not trying to necessarily give you a roadmap to the future as he is trying to get you to feel something. And what is it Joel wants you to fear? Feel. I let it slip. He wants you to feel fear. Why? Well, fear, like we, we all know it. Fight or flight is a primary deep root program from evolution in us. We all feel apprehension and fear. It is natural. It's one of the primary manifestations of the natural man. And Joel is calling up this memory. But he is also saying to us, you feel that? Well, in contrast, there is another way to be in this world. You don't need to fear. You don't have to go along with the natural man. You don't have to go with your default evolutionary setting. You don't have to be afraid all the time. There is a different way to be. He says, Therefore the, uh, the Lord, turn ye, turn ye even to me with all your hearts. That's the different way. Instead of going with your default setting of fear, he says, Go and actively choose to trust the Lord. And rend or tear your heart and, your, and not your garments. Like that, that parallels with Hosea's poetry of a lion ripping open your heart. And, and Joel is saying, let this fear you feel be an invitation to tear open your heart and fully throw yourself to God. Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great of kindness. And who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him? Then will the Lord pity his people. Yea, the, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Fear not. Be glad. Rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. See, evolutionary biology is programmed to fear. It is the natural man. And God is commanding you instead to use your God-given agency to choose to trust him instead of trusting your fear. To use that fear only to the point that it turns you to him and tears open your heart and allows you to throw yourself to him. Choose to trust him. And he declares that if we do, we can live permanently right now in this world with joy. And you may be thinking, no way, I, I can't. I'm telling you, that voice in your head, it's a liar. You can choose. You can feel the fear and choose trust instead. No man can serve two masters. When you use your agency to choose trust, it changes you. Like on, on a biological basis, that's how our brain works. A neuron is either firing or it's not. If you fire, fire a neuron pathway of faith and be proactive in how you turn your thoughts, the result is joy. The default setting is despair. And I'm going to pass on that. I've had enough of that garbage. 
I choose trust and I'm going to choose it every day. Come with me, man. God goes on after he says this. He says, I will restore you to the years that the locust hath eaten. He's like, everything that the locust devoured, I'll take care of it. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dwelt, dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. Ah, you need to consider that a little bit. We feel like our, the Lord's people are always ashamed of not being good enough. That is the direct opposite of what he actually says. Tell Satan to take a hike. My people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. He says it again. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens. Whatever it is that's causing you to feel fear right now, God is saying, I can deal with that. I, I can. I am the God of the universe. I can restore whatever it is you feel like you have lost, the love, the time, the energy. He's like, we, we got forever. We got a universe. I can, I can deal with it. I can help you feel love, safe, accepted. I can help you deal with the difficulties of life. I will pour out my spirit upon you. My grace, my enabling strength will be in you. Straight up, pour it into your soul. You just need to turn ye even to me with all your heart. You just need to fear not. Make that decision to fear not. Make that decision to be glad and rejoice for the Lord will do great things. Choose. When you choose to turn to God, when you choose to trust Him, you are going to find that not two minutes later, the automatic evolutionary ingrained thoughts of fear are going to start running their programming again. Satan is start, going to start immediately to try and get you back to worry, mistrust, doubt. Okay. Just use your agency again and choose again to trust. Just begin again. Fire your faith and trust. Do it again and again and again. Say out loud, I can do this. Say, God has my back. Say it out loud. Say it like, God has me. I got this. I trust. And notice how it automatically changes your way of being in the world. As you say out loud, God has me. God loves me. I got this. When you choose faith, changes everything. You're not stuck. The way of being he's describing of fear, it's not permanent. In fact, God promises in chapter three of Joel that one day God himself will confront and defeat all evil. He, he says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. All this evil, right? 
For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened. Again, that, that consistent imagery of the locusts, right? The, uh, this is the third time he's come back to this, this fear imagery. The stars shall withdraw their shining. The moment it looks darkest, the Lord shall roar out of Zion and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord, your God. Think about that language. I am your King, your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine and the hills shall flow with milk and the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and shall water all the valley. He's saying, man, trust me and I will make good things flow into your life. It's not about you, it's about me. It's about you not holding back my blessing anymore, not blocking me anymore because you feel ashamed or unworthy or too dumb. When are you going to trust me and let me do my thing, he's saying. Now, particularly here, when he's talking about a fountain flowing out of the house of the Lord, Joel is, seems to be quoting Ezekiel here. He quotes a lot of prophets. He, he's kind of like the Neil A. Maxwell of the, the prophets here. Scriptures are just part of who he is and it's just part of how he talks. He quotes Amos, Isaiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Obadiah, even Malachi. He's just boom. Uh, but we're not gonna break all of that down here. Just know that's what he's doing. This line, a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley. This is powerful. That is the restorative love of God. It flows freely from his temple. And by this, his grace will go out to the world and heal it, heal their backsliding. They're too immature to understand. And he's like, ah, that's okay, I got you. This is awesome. People, people you participate in worship with People in the church today and in the past, including leaders, are not perfect. And sometimes your interactions in the church are going to make you feel like, what the heck? And sometimes, honestly, the people, they, they just suck. But this promise right here, this is the reason to stay firmly anchored in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. The idea that God is going to use his temple to connect with people in concrete ways. That he's going to use these sacred temple spaces as conduits to pour out his spirit on the world and thereby renew this world, turn it into a new garden of Eden, a paradise. That's something I want to be a part of. That's something I believe in and care deeply about. So listen to Joel, go to the temple, open your heart and allow God's light, love and healing power to float into your life and flow through you out to others. Listen to Hosea, Hosea tell you that God has your back, that God wants you back.
And both of these guys are saying there is a different way to live. You can let go of the fear you currently feel and you can instead feel joy. That's what I want. Let's do it. Do it with me today. Choose trust and let go of fear. And when it comes creeping back in, just be present in this moment and choose faith again, again and again. The more you practice it, the more natural it will be and the more joyful this world will be. It's an amazing way to live. There is nothing God can't handle. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.